Hello, I'm Chris Kreitchow, and this is New Rust Station, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is a news episode for Rust 1.32. First up, Parity is back sponsoring the show because they want to hire Rust developers, also known as you. Parity is advancing the state of the art in decentralized technology, and they're using Rust to do it, leaning hard on its trifecta of performance, reliability, and productivity. They're building cutting-edge tech in areas like WebAssembly and peer-to-peer networking. Two of their larger projects are Substrate, which is a framework for building blockchains, and Polkadot, a platform leveraging blockchain tech for scaling and interoperability in decentralized systems. If those projects sound interesting to you, check out their jobs at parity.io slash jobs. Thanks again to Parity for sponsoring the show. Okay, so let's dig into what will be the last news episode for a little while. Because I got the Rust 1.31 episodes out late, this is a very strange month with three news episodes in it. Happily, there will not be another news episode for about six weeks until Rust 1.33, and you should get at least one bonus episode and one teaching episode between now and then. With that context set, let's jump in, because Rust did not slow down even a little bit with this release. First up, the debug macros. If you're like me, sometimes you use a debugger like LLDB or GDB, but just as often you end up using printline or ePrintline to dump the output and state of some part of your program while you're trying to work out why some data structure isn't in quite the shape you wanted. This process is fine for debugging, but it's definitely not amazing, and it's quite repetitive. You always have to remember the slightly odd debug format string invocation, curly brace, colon, question mark, close curly. Or if you want to pretty print it, curly brace, colon, pound sign, question mark, close curly. Confession, I always forget that the latter even exists. It makes the output way more useful, though. Rust 1.32 to the rescue here with the debug macro. You still have to put derive debug for any types which you want to be able to print this way. In truth, I end up doing this for almost every type in all of my programs anyway, so that's not a particularly big deal. But once you do put that derive on your types, you can just do debug some value. No format string required. This is a quality of life win. It's not some huge change to the language, but I love it. You just get a pretty printed, formatted output of that value, even if it's some incredibly complicated type. Very nice. Up next is a really important, but also kind of out there in the weeds kind of change. As of Rust 1.32, all platforms now use the system allocator by default instead of an allocator called JE malloc. I talked about this a bit back in the episode for Rust 1.28, which was when Rust grew the ability to switch allocators. That was important foundational work for this change. Now, people who want to keep JE malloc can. And this is not a change for all platforms, Windows already used the system allocator, but it is a change for many Unix-like platforms, Linux, macOS, etc. As a quick refresher, the allocator is the piece of your programming environment which gives you memory when you need it. A memory allocator has a couple responsibilities. It has to give you enough memory for the thing you're trying to allocate. So for example, if you need to double the size of a vector because you're running out of room, The memory allocator has to do that. 
It also has to reliably handle conditions when your system is out of memory, if it can't do that. Your memory allocator also has to try to keep the allocations which it makes well-structured. And this lets it keep providing memory as you need it. If things get chunked up too much or too weirdly, the system might have enough total memory available for some request, but none of it in big enough individual blocks to actually give it to you. And that's a problem. You'd end up with another out-of-memory issue. There are, no doubt, even more responsibilities that I'm unaware of that allocators have to fulfill. I've never actually needed to deal with allocators myself in detail. But like a lot of things, when you are dealing with them, it's super important that you be able to control them. Now, J.E. Malloc does all of those things, but it has its own set of quirks and behaviors and bugs. And the reason Rust was using it in the first place goes back to the time in Rust's history where Rust had a green threading model, more like Erlang or Go. That time passed ages ago, long before Rust 1.0, and at this point it makes the most sense to default to the system allocator and let people opt in other directions if they have good reason to, but not to force that choice on them. So now that's what we do. One big immediate upside of this is that your binary should be smaller. Not a massive amount smaller, but meaningfully smaller. I saw one Twitter user comment that they saw a Hello World program drop from 576 kilobytes to 280 kilobytes. That's almost a 50% reduction in size. Now, of course, you're not going to see a 50% reduction in the size of most applications or libraries written in Rust. It's more likely that you're just going to have a constant size decrease on the order of those kinds of hundreds of kilobytes, and the specific amount will depend on the specifics of your system. It won't change at all on Windows, for example, since J. Malik was never the default there. But this is a nice little win for most users. Now, the biggest language feature landing in this release is uniform paths, the final part of the module system improvements I've talked about over the last few months. Uniform paths here means that the path system now works exactly the same way for imports, that is in use statements, as it does everywhere else, all other path statements or references. Historically, a use path always started from the root of your crate. Other paths always started from their current location in the crate, and there were reasons for this, but it meant that in your root module, your lib.rs or your main.rs, both of these appeared to work the same way, because by coincidence, they did work the same way. But as soon as you had a submodule, the two kinds of paths stopped working the same way. The confusion that sprang out of that difference was one of the major motivators for reforming how module paths work in Rust over the last year. Paths already got a lot clearer when the path clarity changes landed. We talked about that a few episodes ago. But uniform paths provide the final touch, and they make for a much clearer and a much easier to learn system. You can always use the same kind of path from anywhere in your crate in any kind of path statement, and it always works the same way. So if you write some module and then a pair of colons and some item in a use statement, it's a relative path, just like it would be if you were writing a path to an item for resolving it in a where clause or in a type definition or anything else. This is a really big win for the learnability and consistency of the language, and frankly, it's just going to save me a lot of headaches because even after a couple of years, I still get this wrong occasionally. Happily, not anymore. There's one other language-level feature coming out in Rust 1.32, and that is a bunch more places where you can use the self-type. 
One of these is that you can use self as the name of the type when you're constructing unit or tuple structs. So for example, if you're using a tuple struct for a new type pattern to give yourself a type safe wrapper for another type, an example of this would be you might write struct email wrapping a string so that you could have a tool for differentiating between strings which have been validated as emails and strings which are just strings. Well, then in an impl block for email, you could write self and some validated string inside parentheses instead of email with some validated string inside parentheses to construct that type. Likewise, you can use the self shorthand in type definitions now. The release notes give the example of a constrained list generic over some T type, where you want it to be an ordered list. You might write it with a where clause whose body was self being constrained to be partially ordered, taking self, instead of a list T constrained to be partially ordered over a list of T. These kinds of simplifications throughout are just nice shorthands. Again, nothing world-changing here, but in each of these cases, it means you can write the type just once and refer to it as self thereafter, as you already can in many other places in the language. It's a nice consistency win. Beyond the fancy new debug macro I opened with because I was so excited about it, this release got a number of other nice little library stabilizations. First, there is another major batch of standard library uses of const functions. This should lead to small but meaningful increases in the performance of these functions at runtime. A handful of illustrative examples, of course, the full list is in the show notes and in the release notes, which you should always look at. The char is ASCII, the stir as pointer, the IPv6 address new, and the duration as seconds functions. All of those now give you constant execution if they're in a const context. For details on what that means, go back and listen to the preceding news episode. The upside, if you don't recall, is that these don't have to be calculated by a running program anymore if they're in a const context. So every program that has these in a const context just gets a little bit faster. Another library stabilization that's kind of handy is a bunch of new handlers to convert little and big Endian bytes to numbers in Rust's native representation, that is the local representation on your system. If you've never run into the idea of Endianness before, it's the order in which information is stored in the binary value that makes up your data, makes up bits and bytes and so on. If you're reading binary as a set of numbers, you have to answer, is the first bit on the left side of a byte or on the right side of a byte? And for that matter, for bytes, is the smallest or the least significant byte first or last reading left to right in a whole data structure? And when I say least significant here, I mean smallest. So for example, in binary, the bit representing one is smaller, less significant than the bit representing two, which is smaller, less significant than the bit representing four, and so on. Little endian puts the least significant bits and bytes first, so on the left reading a string. Big endian puts the least significant bits and bytes last. And this doesn't often come up in most high-level programming we would do, but when you're dealing with things like network protocols or low-level hardware concerns, it can be very important because it is the difference between whether you can actually read that protocol or that hardware register or not. So Rust now has convenient handlers to take data from either big or little Endian and convert it into numbers, where you no longer have to concern yourself with Endianness because Rust has converted it to its local representation, and you can just deal with I-32s or U-32s or whatever else. 
That is most of the things that I saw fit to highlight from this release. As always, you should take a look at the blog post and the release notes for more. However, there were a couple things that came to my attention in the community context, which are not necessarily new, but they were new to me. And I wanted to share these with you as well. The first is Amethyst, which is a game engine written in Rust. This one came in via listener, Alexander Lozada, who did what I'm always asking people to do at the end of the show and just emailed me about it. Amethyst aims to be both incredibly fast, it's leaning hard particularly on Rust's ability to do safe multi-threaded computation, and also idiomatic and easy for game developers to use. It uses the Entity Component System, ECS, architecture that, as I understand now, is a standard pattern in game development. For more on that, the keynote at RustConf 2018 was extremely informative, both as to why ECS is a common pattern in game development and how Rust is a really great fit for it. So if you haven't watched that, you should definitely pull that up and give it a watch. It's great. Amethyst has a whole book devoted to using it. It has a bunch of examples to see how to get started with it. It has docs. It has integration today with OpenGL, and there's work in progress for both Vulkan and Metal. Basically, this seems to be an attempt to make game development in Rust both easy and good, and I think that is fantastic. This is way outside my realm of expertise, but it is super cool. Another neat crate I saw fly across my radar is Insta. It's a brand new tool for snapshot testing in Rust. Snapshot testing is a style of testing that gained a bunch of steam in front-end web development in the last few years, especially in the React community. The basic idea is you generate an expected value, often for something a bit more complicated than some string or integer. In the front-end world, it's often something like render DOM output, and you store that in a separate file from the test. Then when you run the tests, they simply diff their output against the contents of that file. If you make an intentional change that alters the output you expect, you update the snapshot. And this can make your test code a lot easier to read and maintain. Instead of basically having to include all of that output directly in the body of your test, you can store it beside the test and let your test code simply do the work of describing what you actually expect to happen. The Instacrate applies this model to items in Rust. It works with anything which supports either the debug trait or Serde's deserialized trait. And then in your tests, you use one of the macros that Insta supplies. Assert snapshot matches just compares basic string output. Assert debug snapshot matches compares the output of debug printing a data structure. And you have to turn on the serialize feature in the crate, but then you can use assert serialize snapshot matches to compare any type which supports Serde's deserialize trait. It'll generate YAML for the snapshot and compare that output. When you run your tests the first time, you just make sure they fail the way you expect them to. There's no snapshot there, so they can't pass. And then you generate the snapshot by setting the insta update environment variable to one and then running cargo test. That generates the snapshots for future use. As soon as I looked at this, I realized that I want it a lot because I want an easier way to test a lot of the pieces of my, yes, very slowly, but still moving static site generator project. I have a bunch of tests in a working branch right now, which just make sure that the tool serializes and deserializes a, a number of pretty complicated data structures in the way I want. Snapshots would help a ton with those. 
That's it for Rust 1.32 and community things that flew across my radar. But I have a little bit of personal news here at the end of the episode. I am starting a new job on the 28th of January, 2019, so a little under a week from when this episode goes out. I'll be working on front-end infrastructure at LinkedIn, and I'm excited about this role for a lot of reasons. I'm a little sad to leave my current role because it's been great, but one of the things nearest the top of my list of reasons I'm excited to go to LinkedIn is that there's a very, very good chance I will actually get to write some Rust for my job over the next year. That is pretty exciting. Another note is that I have been making new Rust Station for longer than I have had any job in my entire career. And that's really thanks to everyone out there who keeps listening and recommending it to others. And in particular, of course, to the folks who've seen fit to sponsor the show along the way. Thank you all. And there's a lot more to come. On that note, this month's $10 or more sponsors included Brian Stitt, Alushay Shonaya, Daniel Collins, Scott Muller, Benham Esabode, Rob Chuk, Paul Naranja, Johan Anderson, Rafe Levine, Chip, Andrew Dirksen, Matt Rudder, Joseph Marty, Nicholas Boucher, Nick Gidio, Bjorn, Jonathan Knapp, Alexander Payne, Dan Abrams, Nathan Scully, Chris Palmer, Jerome Froelich, Brian McAllister, Ramon Buckland, Michael McDonnell, Peter Tillemans, Daniel Mason, Anthony Deschamps, James Hagen's Second, John Rudnick, Nick Stevens, Jacob Denar, Embark Studios, Graham Willadal, Ryan Osiel, Martin Huschober, and Evan Stahl. You can sponsor the show yourself at patreon.com slash neurostation or via other services listed on the show website, neurostation.com. There you will also find show notes, including links to the things I talk about, scripts, code samples, and interview transcripts. Notes for this episode are at neurostation.com slash show underscore notes slash news slash rust underscore one underscore 32. Please do recommend the show to others if you like it, whether that's in person, via your favorite podcast directory, or some other cool way. You can contact me, especially with news items or things you'd like me to talk about in news episodes, at Chris Kreitcho or at Neurostation on Twitter, or you can just send me an email at hello at Neurostation.com. Until next time, happy coding. Happy coding.